If you like the Smug Film Podcast, do yourself a favor and head over to patreon.com slash smugfilm, where we've got a bunch of great rewards if you donate to the show. For $1 a month, you'll get a bonus mini episode of the show every Monday in your inbox, as well as access to all of our past mini episodes. These episodes will never be available on iTunes or Smug Film or anywhere else. The only way to hear them is by donating $1 a month or more through patreon.com slash smugfilm. For $5 a month, You'll get the bonus episodes, plus we'll do a 30-second plug of whatever you want on one episode a month. Whether you want us to plug your website, your movie, your small business, the movie The Protector with Tony Jaw, whatever it is, we'll plug it. And for $10 a month, you'll get the bonus episodes, plus we'll do that 30-second plug on every single episode of the show. So once again, that URL is patreon.com slash smugfilm. Head over there today, and we look forward to your kind donation. And now on to the show. Welcome to the Smug Film Podcast. I'm your host, Cody Clark. With me today is John D'Amico. Shut up. And Jenipka. Say whatever you want. All right. You wanted it. Another year episode, year in film. This time we've got 1955, a very interesting, important year. John D'Amico, please take it away. Explain to these people at home why 1955 is an interesting one in the pantheon of years of film. All right, sup, sup. So we wanted to do a 50s year because the 50s are such a, um, they feel like almost a transitional time for movies. You know, you had, uh, everybody remembers the the height of the 40s, you know, with the Casablancas and the Brief Encounters and the 60s, of course, were this radical shift in how we did it, everything. In the 50s, you kind of feel like they're, the period where film is like crushed under the weight of the Hayes Code and the development of widescreen, which seemed to slow everything down. Right. And just like a lot of long, slow movies that, that most people kind of aren't drawn to as much. So a period like that is always interesting because you, you, you start to tease it apart and you, you try to figure out what made it so peculiar. And um, 55 came up because when you, when you start to look at the, uh, the movies of the time and you start to really look at the talent pool... You realize that 55 is one of those years that we take for granted and um, can probably hold its own against a a 39 or a a 79 or anything, at least in terms of the fact that uh, I'm not sure there was ever a year in the history of film where you had more great directors at work at once. When you start to lay out the list of the filmmakers making films in 55, which because it was sort of a transitional era... And you still had the old guard working and you had the, the new works of people like uh, Altman and Agnes Varda. You had this really interesting confluence of just an incredible amount of talent. Uh, a lot of them who made multiple projects. So we, we made a list kind of uh, semi-casually of all the directors who were at work at once. And when you hear it read out, it's, it's almost staggering. So in 55, you had making films, releasing films that year, Carl Dreyer, Douglas Sirk, Nicholas Ray, Satyajit Ray, John Ford did two, Alfred Hitchcock did two feature films and three television episodes, Louis Buñuel did two, Agnes Varda released one, Alain Resnais released one, Laurence Olivier, Jacques Turner, Orson Welles, Stanley Kubrick, Akira Kurosawa, David Lean, Fritz Lang, King Vidor, Edgar Ulmer did two, Federico Fellini, Billy Wilder, Jules Dessin, Michael Powell, John Sturges, Walt Disney, 
Henri Clouseau, Max Ophels, Morris Engels and Ruth Orkin, Sam Fuller, George Pabst, Robert Aldrich, Howard Hawks, Otto Preminger, Anthony Mann, and uh, Ed Wood even, who has his place, I think, in the most interesting directors. Well, it just sounds like a list of great directors. It just sounds like you're reading like some guy's okay cupid here's my favorite directors i'm real into film kind of thing like it, it it's it is really staggering because you could just you could just watch films from that year for a while and you would see these works by all these great directors like you don't even need to venture if you're going to pick a year this is a hell of a year to just fucking digest yeah and a lot of them are uh some of the best, and in a lot of cases, some of the most personal works of these filmmakers. Like Nicholas Ray had Rebel Without a Cause this year, which is um, basically everybody's favorite Nicholas Ray movie. Yeah. And, and um, such a significant and personal film for him, and not only him, but all the actors in it, um, who never escaped, I guess you would say, from the shadow of that movie. Right. Carl Dreyer did Ordette that year, which is um, one of his most personal, along with Joan of Arc. John Ford did The Long Gray Line, which most people don't know about, but people who study Ford, like me, always seem to come back to The Long Gray Line as one of his most interesting and uh, open-hearted works. And uh, Hitchcock came to television this year, which was maybe one of the most important developments in the role of the director in filmmaking. Because when Hitchcock went to television and people started to see him on the screen every day, and hear him say, these are my stories, that was kind of the beginning of the idea that a director creates a work. Mm. That was almost the beginning of auteur theory when that happened. And Kubrick did Killer's Kiss this year, which we've talked about a lot as, as oh, a movie man. that's, yeah, just endlessly fascinating just, for us. I mean, I remember specifically when you were trying to figure out look and cinematography and how you wanted to shoot Green Brothers, um, I was over at, I guess, one of the producers' houses yeah. with you. I was just sitting in. I didn't have any involvement. I was just there, you know, watching good clips from good movies, essentially. Drinking beer, watching clips from some of the best movies you've ever seen. And Killer's Kiss was one that you picked specifically. And when that was on, I mean, everybody was kind of glued to it in a way that they weren't necessarily glued to other stuff. They were like, all right, well, yeah, I like this scene. I like that scene. Yeah. Like it was more like everything else was, every other clip you showed, it was more like, yeah, this movie's good. Yeah, this clip's good, but how can this help us? How can this, that? But Killer's Kiss, they were extended sequences that we we just watched. And I think it was even on mute, wasn't it? Yeah, but you just can't look yeah. away from it. I always I always love the whole thing of like a movie that you can watch on mute and still get something amazing from. That's a real testament to uh, it, its power. And Killer's Kiss, you can watch it on mute and you are not lost one bit. Yeah. you Maybe you don't get the exact specifics of the story, but you get the idea of what's happening. And it still has that look that um, always sort of informed Kubrick to the end. Like, uh, even Eyes Wide Shut has a lot of practical lighting. Hmm. But this is the most pure expression of what he was doing as a still photographer. Oh, my God. Which is just incredible. Like, the best street photography maybe anybody's gotten. Well, there's that part on the roof, which I remember, I mean, it was blowing our minds when we were looking at it that day. Because there's light in the sky that if he was, like, one stop away, 
it would get blown out and you wouldn't see it. Like it was, it was like a perfect calculation. People don't realize when, like when you're shooting film, like he did, you got to have that shit in your mind. You got to know exactly what the light is. Yeah. You can't look through the viewfinder and calibrate. Exactly. You didn't know. It's not what you see is what you get. It's like coding a site with just a pure HTML and not looking at it whatsoever until like months later, the light and the darkness in the scene, which is my favorite visually scene in the movie when, uh, the hero is in his apartment, and you can see the heroine in the apartment behind him. Oh, God. And um, his lights are off, and hers go on. And, like, he's lit by the light of her apartment, and they're, like, looking at each other. And it's just this unbelievable choreography of, of uh, blocking and lighting that's, for a first-time filmmaker making his first feature film on no budget and holding the camera himself because it's, you know, he didn't even have a crew. Yeah. Like the balls to do that. I don't even know where you'd find a location like that. Yeah. Well, it's the one that he considers his his first. It's like with M. Night Shyamalan. If you ask him what his first film was, he's going to say Sixth Sense. You know, he obviously he did Fear and Desire, but he didn't like oh, that true. one. Yeah. You know what? To Kubrick's credit, I forgot about yeah, that one. Yeah, but he didn't He didn't like that one. He he didn't care about that it's one. It's not very good. Yeah. And yeah, and he had shorts before. He had Day of the Fight and the Flying Padre. But yeah. Killer's Kiss, really, yeah, it, it announces him. Oh, God. Yeah. And uh, and nowadays, if you want to see this movie, you're probably thinking to yourself, all right, let me just type that into Amazon, check it out. You're going to have to type in The Killers, unfortunately, because Killer's Kiss, to this day, the best way to see it, which is on the Blu-ray of uh, The Killers, uh, it, it, it's a bonus yeah, it's a special feature, feature, which insane. Like, it should have just been a double pack. It should have just been Killers and Killer's Kiss, double pack criterion. I don't care if you keep it on the same disc, but... It, it deserves equal uh, billing. You know what else is like that from this year? Uh, Agnes Varda's La Pointe Court, which is um, her, I think also her debut, if not her debut, a very early feature for her, which is only available in like a four pack of Agnes Varda early films. Right. She invents the French New Wave in this movie. Yeah, it's... it's uh, Three years before they say it happened, but it, like... <laughs> The, the editing and the, uh, the, the compositions and everything, she's inventing the French New Wave. And it's only available as like a four pack. So it's weird that like the birth of modern cinema, you have to buy like a a pack and just stumble upon it by accident. Well, speaking of buying packs and stumbling upon it, Phoenix City Story. The only oh, way yeah. to see that one is on Film Noir Volume 5 collection. To TCM's credit, though, they are always playing the Phoenix City Story because they know. That's true. That's true. TCM, a lot of these things like... These films we're talking about, sometimes you'll just stumble upon them on TCM. Like you'll see uh, Satyajit Ray stuff. You'll see yeah. Phoenix City Story. TCM is incredible for seeing these kinds of movies. Uh, if you aren't taking advantage of it already, you know, please do. Even just like look up like, you know, the timetables of like what movies are playing. You can just check that online for like weeks at a time. And uh, that, that's always a great way to, to find these movies that like get buried like Phoenix City Story, you got to buy like a whole set of like five or six movies just for this one movie. Yeah. I mean, most of them are good in that set. Oh, yeah. A few of them aren't, but yeah, uh, it's worth getting. But yeah, Phoenix City Story is, is stands above the rest. Yeah, we should probably go into that one. Phoenix City Story, you guys adored. I liked things in it, but um, let, let's get into a little bit of the background of, uh, of Phoenix City Story because it is a, a true story. Yeah, uh, what'll be a common theme in 55 is people sort of pushing the parameters of what they were allowed to do censorship-wise. And Phoenix City Story, I think if it wasn't a true story, there's no way at all 
it would have gotten past the censors. It's right. shocking for 55. Yeah, if it was yeah. just something some guy came up with in his apartment, they would be like, what the fuck is wrong with you? We can't make this yeah. movie. Uh, and it, it begins with like, what is that, like 20 minutes? Like a 20 minute <laughs> yeah. little documentary before it, which was really uh, primarily to pad the time, but also I think as a way to let the censors know, you know, this violence isn't, this is socially uh, important violence. Yeah, it was like, here are these real people. Let's talk to them about what happened. You know, they're they're yeah. fucked up from it. And it's and it's also wonderful. Like I love oh, yeah, early it's... documentary footage is <laughs> yeah. always hilarious. It's yeah. like it's like putting like I, it's like deer in headlights. Oh god, yeah. One hundred percent. Which is is like it has that like Christopher Guest kind of quality yes. to it. Like especially like his mustache, the interviewer's mustache and his Just look. like the way that he kept looking at the camera. Yeah. And like how he's standing. It's it's been done so many times now since uh, in in jest that like yeah, it's very comedy, very yeah. hard to take seriously anymore but it's very it was it was interesting but it also it, it took me a minute like to get like you know i had to i asked you guys i was like was that real yeah i wasn't was, sure if it was real at first i but was then waiting for them to come back as like, actors and i couldn't really tell <laughs> yeah. so i was like ah. it makes you appreciate the um technical innovation that's about to come in like three or four years with um the nagra recorder when you could get sync sound and camera stuff basically one person could hold it right and then after that you could do a documentary the way we know them but at this time it was technically impossible the the uh the sound setup and the lighting setup you needed was just ridiculous so you have yeah these like weird very artificial attempts to not have any artifice yeah it's, and like nobody knows what they're supposed to be doing including yeah. the interviewer that's, that's what's so interesting it's not it's like not even just the technical innovation but just the fact that you know everyone now if we see a camera on the street everyone now runs in front of the camera you know what i mean like yeah, everyone you, wants uh, to be in like oh i'm gonna be on tv great everyone <laughs> will just jump right in there whereas like this was more of a as you said it's like a, a big like well, how do I hold myself? You know, like everyone just looks like totally. Well, it's like with old photographs where you look at like really old early photographs and people aren't really entirely sure how they should be standing and what expression right, they and should they look have terrified. on their face. I yeah. have uh, my great grandparents' wedding photo from 1924. And it's very fascinating because the old people in the photo who were young enough, who were young enough at the time when you had to sit still for a minute in a photograph right. are very stiff. And the younger people who were born in the teens or the, uh, the you know, turn of the century are super loose because they're of the snapshot era. Mm. It's really kind of interesting. That's you really have this, cool, yeah, like yeah. This, this depiction of like how two generations had to deal with cameras. Yeah, because people don't know. I mean, the exposure used to be like a real long time for like early cameras. Yeah, it was like sitting for a portrait. Yeah. But um, you get that feeling, I think, in a lot of stuff in 55, this feeling that they're like right on the cusp of um, figuring out a new way to make movies, but they're not quite there yet. Well, you see that in Phoenix City Story. We should we should talk about that one a little bit more in depth. So, so after that, you know, the 15-minute intro, which is is great in its own right, it's one of those things you can just, like, watch that. And it's just, like we said, very awkward interview vibe. Um, but the actual film itself is kind of a film noir. But, yeah, give a little bit of the background on uh, on that one. Well, it's about a mad, corrupt town in, uh, it's Alabama, right? Not Mississippi? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Alabama. This mad, corrupt town in Alabama with a lot of... Um, That's how they say it in 55, right? Mad, corrupt? Yeah, mad, corrupt town in Bama <laughs> with like, you know, a lot of those Well, the working like, title was Mad, Corrupt Town. 
<laughs> it's like snakes on a plane. I guess you would call <laughs> yeah. it, what would you call it? Like crony politics where the politicians are running the gambling and everything. Well, as they say in the film, vice. <laughs> yeah. The guy, like they're doing like the, in the narration intro and then like right at the end, he's like, and vice. Well, that's because vice news actually financed the film. And that was, uh, yes. uh, that was an early viral early, ad. early Shane Smith uh, production. Yeah. Well, that's, what's so interesting about this movie, right? Is that, you know, yeah, you have these corrupt, like, you know, um, the mob, Owning the politicians who are now running yeah. the city. Yeah. And then the honest man who runs against them and, and throws the whole thing into disarray. Well, they're, exactly. They're taking in millions and millions of dollars This yeah. just on vice in this city alone. Like uh, you see in the beginning, they're like loading dice with mercury. Yeah. And, uh, you know, fixing cards, like marking cards and all that. Like it was like this huge money-making industry in just and a small town. And good old boy, you know, like uh, white supremacy <laughs> under all of it. Oh, God. Which, and it's, it's shown yeah. in that very 50, it's very, very cliche dated 50s kind of filmmaking, even telling you about this Vice stuff. They're, they're showing you like, and what does this town, here's the wonderful town of Phoenix City, and what does this town have? Yeah. Why do they have, <laughs> you know, like cards that it's are- It's very cutesy, even yeah, though it's like it's, fucked up shit. Right, yeah. and I actually, the way that they started it, because it was so like, you know, and what else do they do, little Jimmy? Why, there's prostitutes on the corner? <laughs> well, that's wonderful. Like, I thought it was going to be one of these movies that was about how cool it is to be corrupt. Right, yeah. I actually, and it throws you for a loop like that, because it definitely, like, it starts off in the acting, is it's it's dated, you know, like, it, it takes a while to kind of warm up, but then as, uh, you know, John promised, John got both of Cody and I to watch this movie, and it, it was like, it takes this hard fucking turn and you're like, oh my God. Oh, it gets like, yeah. it gets brutal. Oh my God. Shocking. Like it 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 goes what's interesting about it in, in the context of this year is it goes from being a fifties film to being a sixties film halfway through. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. yeah. Like like we were saying, they were looking for a new way to make movies. Somewhere halfway through Phoenix City story, they figure it out. And the second half of Phoenix City story, the movie it reminds me of most is Night of the Living Dead. Oh god. Like it has that same yeah. like apocalyptic like out on the streets photography type of vibe and that same just like overwhelming hatred and like that sense of whether or not you're going to lose your your morality in this like overwhelming hatred you have for for the people who are pressing their boots on your neck. But it was like even more violent than Night of the Living Dead. Like this is one of the mo more violent films yeah, I've really not ever as bloody, seen. but more like grimly violent right it's, it's just it's completely brutal and still that's the other thing i mean it was shocking for 2016 and not just shocking because like oh shit they did that in 55 but shocking because had we had a movie now that did that we'd still be like oh my god yeah like, mm -hmm. yeah amazing we're all dancing around talking about the content of the scene and and there's a reason for that yeah well, we won you guys gotta just some of this just stuff watch yeah it. I'll just say that it has it's, to be left to just you going off and watching it on your own. It is like the first act of violence that happens is the most shocking. And it carries, I, I would say it carries the rest of the film. Even. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I couldn't tell honestly, if maybe that was meant to have been a lesser thing that builds, but I, I it just, at least in today's context, it, it absolutely was horrifying and just maintained horror for the rest of the whole. No, film. I get the vibe. That was the way it was supposed to be. I think it, it does this really interesting thing where it like lets you get comfortable and then, like, kicks you out of your chair. Oh, yeah. And um, that's really why it makes me think of Night of the Living Dead. Because really one of the only other movies I can think that does that is uh, Psycho six years later and Night of the Living Dead the better part of a decade later. Mm. Where it lets you really settle in and think you have the movie figured out. And then, like, halfway through, it drags you 
down to reality. And those two are better movies. I mean, Psycho and Night of the Living Dead are better movies and they're right. more significant. But I don't know that either one of them pulls it off, that specific trick, off better than the Phoenix City story. And neither one of them pulls it off in the 50s. No. <laughs> and uh, Phoenix City story, it's like one of those, if ever there was a movie to make the case for just, you know, like Jenna's classic thing of always finished a goddamn movie. Yeah. This is one of those movies. Always finished a goddamn movie. Because if, if you're... You Which know, is exactly what I said to you yeah. halfway through. <laughs> I, I sent him a Facebook message. I was like, I watched half of it. And I'm kind of like, eh, it's, I don't know if what you see in it. Guy. It was probably like one minute yeah, before. I, I think I was. I was I was probably mere minutes before. Because I, I had the, the same reaction. Turn. Yeah. I, I was like watching it. I was settling in. I was interested. And then I found myself sighing. I was like, all right, like... <laughs> Come on. And then suddenly it was like, you yeah. know, like just a total uh, bomb. But yeah, that's a, that's a choice 1955 cut. We should probably go a little lighthearted from here. Well, I just want to say one last thing about Phoenix City story is that I thought that one of the most interesting questions that seems to be asked in this film was uh, that sort of takeaway of, of what does it take? Like at what yeah, point, right. what point is too much? And, you know, they, they give you some really horrific imagery that you would have thought that first act of violence would have been enough and it somehow wasn't. Yeah. And it was so oddly relevant to 2016, you know, oh, totally. Yeah. Especially with our, you know, with our gun vi violence debate with Sandy hook with this sort of like, that wasn't enough. Oh, okay. Like, yeah. you know, like what, what is it going to take? Right. And, and that's what th that movie was really fascinating. And, and it doesn't, it, it really, it's an unsettling film. Yeah. I never thought about it in that terms of that really is very accurate. It's, um, it, it doesn't let you off the hook uh, morally in that way, you know? No way, yeah. And this was very much, you know, this was the era of uh, let's all calm down and let each other off the hook morally and just take our antidepressants and get to work on time and it'll be fine. Mm. Right. So a much uh, lighter film in comparison, but also a very modern film, I would say, is uh, Marty. The oh my God, Ernest Borgnine. Not sure I would call it light though, because Marty does yeah. kick my heart out of my chest. Oh God, me too, <laughs> absolutely. But uh, lighter in comparison, at least content-wise, to uh, Phoenix City Story. Uh, but equally, I would say as as modern and as ahead of its time. You know, people always make the complaint of like old movies feeling old, and like you, there's like a slog that people describe when watching like older films. And yeah, like. Some older films aren't for everybody, but this is an older film that absolutely does not feel old whatsoever. It feels very modern, especially if you like stuff like, I would say, Louis or even like 40-Year-Old Virgin or just these sort of like... Uh, and you, you saw this more in the 90s because I believe this film was, was remade as Only the Lonely with uh, John Candy, which I always loved ever since I was a kid. Um, very sensitive John Candy role, that film. But... You saw this more in the 90s. He's a good pick for that character. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you saw this more in the 90s where it was uh, these kind of like sweet guy protagonist rom-com, but like very like your fucking heart breaks for these like these sweet characters. Um, I, I would say like Eric Schaefer used to uh, like delve into these waters a little bit. Um, and it feels like... It, it's modern in a way that's like kind of lost now because I feel like if you did Marty now with this protagonist who's basically a guy in his 30s who's never really had a girlfriend, he always has constant pressure to get married. The, his siblings are married, etc. He's a little awkward, uh, beautifully 
played by Ernest Borgnine. If you were going to do it now, either somebody would heighten up the comedy like way big or they would go way dark, like indie, like just depressing, like Jack goes boating, kind of like Philip Seymour Hoffman yeah. with it. Like they but would this go is like either the, direction. The, the first act of Deer Hunter, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, it has that sort of tone. It's uh, yeah, it's uh, like I said before, it's light in comparison to Phoenix City Story. It's as you're watching it, you know, it really hits your heart. One best picture, best actor, best director, best writer, first film by uh, Delbert Mann as a director, by the way. And for a first film, fuck. I yeah. Mean, to come out the gate doing Marty. Yeah, he, he, he had Patty Chayefsky, yeah, which is like. Patty Chayefsky. Can we talk script, a bit about Chayefsky, by the oh, way? Yes, good Lord, yeah. Patty Chayefsky. He's basically, uh, he's like, he's so. Anytime you see a movie that, it, you know, like an older film, and it's like a shocking breath of fresh air. And then you look who wrote it. It's, it's always Chayefsky. Yeah. Always. This was uh this was a great period for writers. I think the 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 major edge that the early mid fifties have on films now is that they paid writers and they took them seriously. Mm. And a lot of that was uh the result of television. Television when it started to come out in this era, as much as film was scared that TV was gonna be the new film, television was trying to be the new theater. So it was very much like a writer's showcase. So you got these unbelievable writers doing these unbelievable uh, stage productions that all became TV productions that all became movies. So you had um, Chayefsky was huge now. This was uh, Serling's height right before he did The Twilight Zone when he was still trying to do um, like corporate dramas. Uh, You had Gore Vidal doing a ton of TV stuff. Just spectacular, spectacular writers at work in this time. Nigel Neal. All these great names who, if you're ever, if you're one of those people who's ever stuck for like what older movies or whatever they want to watch, just like start to Google any of them and pick any of them. Mm. Chayefsky, Vidal, Nigel Neal, Serling, any of them. I mean, they're uh, Reginald Rose. They were so spectacular and they were so lyrical and all given much more latitude than I think a writer has ever gotten since then. I don't think we ever hit another period where the writer was as cherished as this period. Mm. And this was, I mean, this was a very well-received film by critics. Audiences dug it. It wasn't on the top 10 as far as box office, but, it, you know, it was a big hit internationally and domestically. It was the first film to win the, win the Palme d'Or, the uh, the Cannes Prize. And also, like, dude, he looks so much like his mom in that movie. I've <laughs> never seen casting of, like, a mother and a son so, like, perfectly done where it's like it's to the point where he's almost like doing like an eddie murphy double (laughs) performance like it's that eerie same like teeth and like eyebrows and eyes like and like sort of like a little bit squat as far as like uh the dimensions of of his body and her body it's like damn it's like eerie and it's just it's so well written so well acted one of the best like talking on a phone acting bits like i've ever seen because that's like Especially when there's like nobody talking on the other end. Like there's scenes that are that are incredible where like you can hear the person talking on the other end, but and it's like an incredible performance. Like uh, in the movie storytelling, I always loved Paul Giamatti's uh, like very long, unbroken phone conversation scene that opens up like the second half of that film. That's like one of my absolute favorites. But this, I think, this might be maybe my favorite talking on the phone scene when he's 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 yeah. on the phone. He's trying to make a date with this girl that he hasn't talked to for a while. 
and it's it's crushing. It's like it's like um, even more crushing than that scene in Swingers when he leave, he's leaving constant voicemails on this. It reminds lady's. me of the Taxi Driver one where he's yeah. trying to get the second date with her, and the camera just pans down the hall to not have to look at him anymore. One of the best pans ever. Oh, totally. One of the best choices. But you have to see the uh, original television broadcast version of Marty, the 1953 one. Right, two years with, earlier. Yeah, with yeah. Rod Steiger in the lead. Because as much as I love Marty the movie, and I really do. I'm going to say right now, the television version, infinitely better. Television version is one of the best. I think I put it when I did that top 100 for Shot Context years ago. I think it was like in my 30s or something. Man. I mean, it was, it was just a staggering And piece Steiger of work. kills it, right? Yeah, Steiger is as good as Brando in it, I think. Oh, Jesus. I think Steiger in general is a very underrated actor, but in this one, he really earns his keep. Uh, you know, I thought it was really interesting about Marty. Marty is super charming. I thought what was interesting, too, was this whole plot, this sort of secondary plot about his mother. Mm. Yeah. And, and sort of how uh, old women are, are treated or have to, like, live their lives. Yeah. It, yeah, was, it was like half make way to make way for tomorrow. Like, it was that kind of like old people like struggle and feeling like pushed away. Such a great portrait of that, like community up on the Grand Concourse. And oh, definitely. Yeah, you know, but it was. I, I want to say that I'll, I'll throw this out as as a sort of a fifty five um, thread that I I've noticed at least through a, a good couple of films, through good films that came out this year, was a lot of empathy towards uh towards women. Oh, totally. <laughs> mm. Yeah, like that you wouldn't expect. Even you know why? Because women were the dominant audience for movies at this time. Still, yeah. So uh, the producers would like pay for women's pictures now. And now that that's gone, it's like a major loss for the art. It's well, it's just like a loss for the majority of films that are made. I mean, like yeah. it's just so rare, you know. And and there, there's a good couple of movies which we'll definitely get to that you know are are even more over the top, or rather, are more um, that care even more than than this film, <laughs> you know. Like, and this yeah. is it's, it really is a sort of secondary, just sort of thing about his mom. But you know what else I really liked about Marty um, was. I mean, number one, when's the last time you saw a movie that came out that was genuinely heartfelt that starred, you know, two, quote, dogs, you know, as leads? Right. Yeah. It's like with uh, uh, Dogfight. Right. It yeah. reminded me of Dogfight in a way, except that, you know, number one, um, the, the main girl was not, you know, they kept calling her a dog and you're like, no, she's fine. Like, well, I, she's, love uh, the I love that. The 53 one is better about that. I think yeah. she's cast better in that movie. Because this yeah. movie, I mean, like, you know, Ernest Borgnine's not a great looking. He's definitely, I mean, and that's, uh, which isn't to say that you don't get ugly guys who get nice looking women. You know, that's the, cli that's a total cliche. But it was interesting to sort of see this, uh, as you said, not as a comedy not making fun of him. Yeah. Right. And and also not being like super depressing and not casting him as somebody who is better looking. It like it felt very he felt very yeah. realistic. The way that he blows up at his mother in that one scene at the table and then goes back because he's like he's not that guy. Mm. Yeah. Was really interesting. And then also I I really like the whole part about how uh it highlights how people set themselves up for failure and get bogged down by people around them. You know? Yeah. That sort of like That goes back to the phone call again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, how his friends and family came to rely on him being a failure in order for them to, right, to right. live he their was, lives. Yeah, yeah he was the, like their example of like, uh, you know, I'm doing so well. Right, it, <laughs> right. It was exactly in the second that he tried to break out of that, they criticized or they criticized him <laughs> yeah, and they, exactly. they tried to yeah. bat him back down, which was interesting because, you know, for again, for a 55 movie to be like, fuck, you know, fuck the norm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like fuck what fuck what your friends are telling you. Like screw screw that. Like you know they're all losers too. Like you know break free of it. I was a that was also reminding me more of the sixties than, than the fifties. Yeah. At least 
how I, I remember the, how I personally remember the fifties, you know, I was stoned through the sixties. I don't remember them. You know, what's fun <laughs> about Marty the same year that this movie came out, the honeymooners premiered and Ooh. they're, uh, they're such a great pair. They're like the yeah. two sides of the coin of telling the story about a guy like that. Cramden is, uh, He's basically in the same circumstances as Borgnine, but he's got his like beautiful, loving wife and his hijinks. And uh, I feel like even just down to the neighborhood, the sort of outer borough, cold water, flat neighborhoods, there's uh, probably such a temptation to do this story more in the style of the Honeymooners than in the style of Marty. Yeah. I mean, again, like, you know... Not that they're both not amazing, but... He could have, he could have been, I, I was surprised that he wasn't more violent. I was surprised that he was a nicer, genuinely a nicer guy. Yeah, because we're so used to that. Yeah. Yeah. That's and how that's we sort see of, it told. Yeah, the sort of like, you know, well, he's, you know, he's just a poor guy down in his luck. I also loved, I really loved them, the movie Calling Out. It's such an honest movie. That's mm. what was so good about it. I love that Calling Out, like, you know, who was this guy really to fucking leave this woman? Yeah. You know? Like just pointing, like no, dude, like you're you're ugly. <laughs> you have a an okay job. You have a bunch of loser friends, and now you met someone who really cares about you, and you're really gonna listen to your loser friends about it. Like no, you you were given a gift. Like make an effort. <laughs> yeah. You and don't see that. You just don't. And it's it's like you know it's on. It's like a hey, why don't you settle, dude? Like not her. You know, like you settle. <laughs> yeah, this is a movie. I mean, I could I could watch this a million times. I, I, I think don't know it's, if I'd call it settling. Well, just don't I mean, don't walk away from it. Don't pretend you're you're so good. He isn't. He's a, he's not really a cat. I don't, my takeaway from it was not that they're not good and should settle for each other's shitty company. It's that they were both compatible. Yeah. And he shouldn't worry about uh, anybody outside of that relationship. Right. It's more of an outside. Like I don't think the message of this was you're an ugly piece of shit. <laughs> so latch onto this other ugly piece of shit and just live your ugly shit lives together. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that, it, but it was more, uh, you know, don't pretend you you are what you aren't. Like if you saw the connection and it was it was there. Period. Don't listen to your all of his friends spend the whole time being like, oh, she's a dog. You're gonna no, waste totally, time with that dog. But from his perspective, it's not settling. I mean, do you feel like she settle? He settles with her. I don't think. No, I mean nah. that. Basically, the lesson is for other people watching it to settle, not him so much. You know what it actually reminded me of too was. Uh, the movie Shallow Hal, which had like a lot of sensitivity to it that I don't think came across in like the TV spot promotion or the commercials oh, or yeah, whatever. Yeah. Like it had that kind of thing of like, don't listen to your fucking friends. You love this person. Be with this person. Who cares what anybody else think? Which who, ah, who cares what anybody else thinks? And uh, I think that's such a great message for a romance movie. Like that's. That's really what should be your fucking barometer in life. It's like, who the fuck cares? Like, dude, that's your part. That's your that's your mate. That's your that's your lady or that's your guy. And fuck everybody else. Right. I think a movie that is about settling that's, you know, competitive with the greatest of not just this year, but this decade is All That Heaven Allows. All That Heaven Allows, which, by the way, you know, everybody uh, talks about the TV scene and All That Heaven Allows, which is fantastic. Marty does it too. There's a yeah. uh, there's a fuck you TV scene in Marty, and Marty came from a TV movie. Yeah, the directors <laughs> were mad scared of TV in this time. Even in the film that came from a TV movie, there's a scene that's like fuck you television. Yeah, which is pretty pretty fucking balls. Well, also that that TV scene, that famous scene where she's 
um, shown almost caged inside her television to end uh, All That Heaven Allows. Lola Montez does that, but with an actual cage at the end. Ah. They're, uh, you could put the frames side by side and they're like almost the same, same image. All That Heaven Allows is just uh, amazing. Absolutely oh God, yeah. the oh, most yeah. one of the most empathetic movies, I think, also to a female lead without being condescending. Yeah. It's very rare. It really is to find like a movie that can can, you know, confront the sort of uh the condition of being female in a time and in a place yeah. in an era. You know, like this is fifties suburbia. Like that is a cage in itself. And they do such a great job of showing that. I think it was less rare in the fifties than now, which is really a uh major indictment of how movies are made now yeah <laughs> I, I can't argue with that i mean like that movie though i mean just devastating what a like a beautifully shot i love like the use of shadows in that movie and yeah. light and color color jesus it's so good it's like almost difficult to talk about yeah, yeah it's just it's just like there's like, like it overwhelms you there's nothing to say it's just amazing it's just it, an amazing film i think it's the best douglas cirque and most people do you know, maybe somebody will have I would put Imitation a, of Life over yeah. it, See, but just barely. That's usually the personal favorite. You know, yeah. if somebody's going to put something over it, they're usually like, all right, yeah, but in Imitation of Life. That just hit, barely, though. That I mean, hits like some people harder. Um, but man, all that heaven allows. Uh, first of all, Rock Hudson in that movie. Amazing. Yeah. Gorgeous. Jane Wyman in that movie. Oh, my God. Yeah. Her, her face is, you know... She's putting in more work with the tiny gestures on her face than mm. anybody else is doing with their whole fucking body in any other movie. Oh, God. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just just watch the movie. You know, it, it's it's a, such a it's such a perfectly done film that even if it's not necessarily up your alley, even if you're somebody who doesn't tend to like those films, you're not going to come away from it saying that was a bad movie. Like it's just, it's so yeah, there's no way. perfectly done for what, like I'm not a big Technicolor guy. I'm not a big, I'm not usually big on movies that look like this, but I love the look of this film and I love the story being told. I love the acting. It, it's fantastic. And Douglas Sirk, he's like the guy that I, I dig that look of much like uh, the Darden brothers. Like I, I tend to hate shaky cam, but when they fucking do it, I'm like 100% on board. Like, there are these certain guys that just do something so perfectly. The way that... that, that we don't call it shaky cam anymore. That's very 2004. Is it? Am I... Yeah, uh, yeah am I dating very, myself? Like, born identity one era. <laughs> What's it called now? Uh, handy just cam? Handheld. Handheld camera. Shaky cam is pejorative. We don't use it anymore. All right. It was kicked out. We had a meeting. <laughs> GoPro. Uh, yeah, so... When he when he plays around with colors and the way that he plays around with it, it works for me a hundred and ten percent. I love Cirque. Most of my uh, favorite Technicolor movies, now that I'm looking at it, came out this year. Oh yeah, this was a big year for color. I think uh, Richard the Third has beautiful color, stunning color, and uh, it's Sov color because it was a Soviet movie. But Othello, the Bondarchuk version of Othello, which. Um, Everybody owes it to themselves to try to find this version of Othello because the the color in that movie alone is like a film class. Mm. Uh, and that that movie is just stunningly beautiful. And um, The Trouble with Harry, which I know you two idiots don't like because you two Awful. idiots don't like Hitchcock. Awful movie. But not only uh, one of Hitchcock's best and funniest and smartest movies and one of the ones that showed most the uh, kind of humor he was capable of, but like Bad. easily one of the most beautiful <laughs> 
uses a color on the screen. Good and, color. Uh, Good the, color. The the long gray line, the Ford one that, uh, I mean, I could do a whole episode about how much I love the long gray line. That one is probably the best portrait of upstate New York I've ever seen. Hmm. It's all shot uh, super wide at West Point. And West Point, it makes as much sense as uh, when Ford goes to the deserts and shoots super wide. You know, like just to see that that uh, river in, in wide technicolor right. is just stunning. Stunningly beautiful movie, The Long Gray Line. To Catch a Thief had great color. Yeah. I, I thought the, the one thing about that film, it was a little, it was mostly disappointing. It wasn't bad. It just wasn't uh, uh, like... I don't know. It wasn't as clever He's as you like expect. He's like goofing around in that one. But it was beautiful in every single, I thought every shot was a still. Every, like there was just, that whole movie was just beautiful to look at. That's that Hitchcock magic, man. I mean, his eye is, uh, if anything, it's underrated now. And also just the style in that movie, the costume design in that movie. Oh, the costumes spectacular. are just amazing. Spectacular. But that was the thing. It's like you have this beautiful looking, you have a high caliber, you know, cast. You have beautiful costumes. You have wonderful settings. You have great color. You have like, you know, great director, and then you had this plot that was like just okay. It was a bummer. Like, I mean, it, I'm, it not, wasn't I'm bad. not very just, plot oriented with movies, but I get what you're saying. Well, There's the twist a, there was just it was just such a cop out. I thought, like, you know, there was no, there was just nothing there. It was just beautiful. It, his, it looked good, but his best work this year, I think, was for television. I think Breakdown and Revenge, his first two episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, are uh, stunning and unsettling and um, meticulous. And everything he was great at and, and unexpected. And they're so stripped down. The same way, actually, to Trouble with Harry, the Trouble with Harry is they're all so stripped down to just sort of the primal elements of them. Uh, Trouble with Harry is really just about a bunch of people trying to hide a body. And uh, Breakdown is, is uh, just about like a person and a car. And Revenge, his first, the premiere episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents is just... Uh, a guy and a woman trying to find the man that raped her. And they're just these very linear, very lean, almost not plots. They're just these sort of like abstract scenarios. Right. It's like a log line. It's like a. Yeah. And I think he works really well in that situation. The same way I think Ford works really well with that when you pull it down to its basics, because they're both so good at the basic elements that anything else becomes a distraction almost. Um, another really good color one that relates a lot to All That Heaven Allows, which we keep dancing around but haven't brought up, is Lola Montez. Yeah. Uh, which is such a, uh, such a fantastic portrait of a woman trapped in a, in a world. I like, yeah, I liked Hustle. That was another movie. I, that was another, you know, I was a little shocked, I guess, with a, a, a bunch of movies in the same way that the noticing this thread of being empathetic towards women. But there's a lot of genuine empathetic films <laughs> that came out that are really like sort of humanizing for people in scenarios that typically are maybe, you know, now at least thought of as cliche. Yeah. You know, like the the beautiful courtesan, like, you know, she's using men like the same way that the circus sort of presents Lola is uh and then and yet the movie doesn't present her that way and that was very refreshing and like yeah. nice and even the use of the the circus as a framing thing i think if you did that now everyone would be like oh yeah we saw eight and a half we th- we saw tree of life we know the whole frame story abstract thing but this was very early on that kind of uh, a framing yeah and, i mean uh, i like i like that she's sort of she's portrayed as that man-eating beast quite literally yeah. in the circus and then every flashback she's like this tragic figure yeah 
And the, I mean, the camera work. Oh, my God. Beautifully shot. Max Ophels is, uh, they say he's where Spielberg learned how to move a camera. And you have the same sort of a, a feel in these than you do in the best Spielberg moments where, like, everything is so coordinated and uh, you almost, you feel the movement, but you don't feel like you're being moved, if that makes sense. Mm. Like, right. it's so, it flows so naturally, especially at the end with the circus stuff when there's those long pullouts and everybody's just exactly in place, but none of it feels forced at all. Uh, it's just so genuinely elegant. Yeah. And I, you know, like the only thing I would say is that I kind of, it for me, it, it, there was a lull in that last German sort of escapade. You know, like I thought that could have been cut down or like they could have put in maybe more, you know, like I, she, she becomes it was almost- re-edited like a lot. I think the 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 version we are seeing now is it's the, the restored original. Yeah, it's yeah. Not the, yeah, it's not the theatrical one. I'm right. sure it's better, but I'd be interested to see how the theatrical one looked because it was chopped up a lot. Yeah, there I was think. some yeah, there was some story about how they put, made it more linear. Right. Yeah. But which I is mean, the same thing they did with Mike's murder. Uh, a uh, half a century later, the the '80s one, when they uh, it was edited in reverse order, and then the test audiences hated it so much they put it in linear order and like took the whole steam out from under it because they were fucking morons. Yeah, they were. '80s audiences were fucking morons. But uh, and Lola Montez is a great looking Criterion. We should probably add gorgeous remastering. Yeah, wonderful restoration. The same way they restored Mister Arcadin, which had similar issues. Uh, this year, 55, uh, Orson Welles' movie that's just so singular and strange because when you know the the source of the production, it's basically a home movie he made. Mm. And like nothing else looks like it. It's, it's shot so unusually and so uh, idiosyncratically. But that was another one that had like six or seven different cuts floating around because it was so strange. Nobody knew what to do with it. And then Criterion uh, came into the picture and uh, gave us the, the restored version. Big ups to... Uh Criterion, as always. Then I think we should talk about Panther Patchouli, which I will continue to call Panther Patchouli. That's not the name of the film. <laughs> that's, I just, that's just not. I just can't be bothered to read it. Pan, uh, Pater, Pater. Pather Panchali. It's not go. Latin. <laughs> I just, I, Pater Nostra. I just have looked at that name so many times that I can only read Panther Patchouli. Uh, that's, you know, I, I would bring that up after All That Heaven Allows and Lola Montez because this is another movie I thought... Um, you know, and, and so despite the fact that this is part of this Apu trilogy, it really annoys me that they put the boy on the cover of the newer DVDs of this. Why? Because it's not about him like at all, you know, like maybe it's this sort of backstory for this kid later on, but like, this is a totally about the women in this film. And I feel like that's also bearing the lead, you know, like I like, you know, again, another film that's like incredibly empathetic to uh, the women that are stuck and have to wait around and what that's like, what that feels like. I think that this movie, if like if I were to, uh, you know, boil it down, it was really about the mother. See, I would have said the sister. You know, I was a fan of the auntie. I like, I, she was good. Too. Auntie's awesome. Great. That's like one of the best aunties in film. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it's one of those movies where it's hard to and intentionally hard to put a finger on the lead. Because it's about how everybody interacts with each other. Right. Well, I mean, it's definitely it's open to interpretation. But Maybe I, that cover should look like the box art for like the later seasons of The Office, where everybody's <laughs> crammed together and they all like hands on their shoulders and Michael Scott's in the back with a wacky tie. And, and they all weren't there to shoot that photo at the yeah, same time. Yeah, everybody's sort of <laughs> heads on different bodies and everything. Well, the original poster art has the, has the women in it. 
you know, and it's, it makes much more sense than putting the, the boy on it. But like, uh, you know, I, I would say that it's about the mother because she's sitting there, uh, you know, she's, you have the, the little girl who's stealing in order to create some sort of structure. She was my favorite. You have the, she the was mother awesome. yeah. who has to hold down this keep structure in a, a you know, and, and has absolutely no control over anything. And then you have the older woman who's just, she's beyond it. She's just like, I'm going to do whatever the fuck I want whenever I want kind of thing. Yeah. You know, and it, it was just very interesting to see the three of them to see, you know, the mother punishing the daughter for creating, for going out and creating her own structure for, you know, taking what she wants and, and trying to live her life while she has to, you know, she's just punishing her for what her own choices of being stuck and waiting for this husband who comes around occasionally and like hands her like flips her a nickel and then like moves on again. And then, you know, it was, it, it was just a very interesting. Yeah. And I think also empathetic. It, it's also, it's just rare to see movies that, you know, kind of show again, like what it's like to, to be a, a woman who has absolutely no control over your situation. Um, really has no say or input and has to wait constantly. You know, like she couldn't really do anything, but and you know she doesn't want to take money from other people. You know, like it was, it was. Yeah. I just thought that that whole concept was very interesting. But that movie, um, wonderful soundtrack. Oh my yeah, god! Yeah, maybe Ravi Shankar should be on the cover. Uh, yeah. Okay. I, yeah. I would be okay with that actually. <laughs> and also, uh, I mean, just cinematography. I mean, it's another one like Killer's Kiss, where you're so glad the director was a still photographer before he made the movie. Right. Well, it's. I mean, it's a light that nobody would dare play with. Yeah. I mean, some of the some of the the bright light in that film that comes through trees and stuff. That stuff, like, yeah, eh, we'll just wait for it to be overcast. It'll be way easier. Like he he's playing with really challenging light, and I don't know that unless you've played with light, you would you would know how difficult the things he's trying to pull off with light are. Well, it was a very difficult film to make for him. I'm sure in, in a lot of the ways that uh, Lola Montez and Mr. Arcaden were. I mean, he really. Uh, he he rejected a lot of advice telling him to make it more linear and this and that and um it it, it was super low budget uh and it, it, i think it was like 3 or 4 years to finish because mm. he he ran out of money and had to shut it down and moma yeah moma ended up giving him money to finish it because john houston was in india and he was location scouting for the man who would be king which he didn't make for 20 years and while he was there um somebody put some of the footage from Path of Panchali in front of him. And he was like, this is, you know, one of the most incredible movies I've ever seen. Mm. So he got MoMA to give them a finishing money, uh, completion funds. If it wasn't for him, it probably wouldn't have been finished, at least not in 55. That's incredible. Uh, yeah. It's visually alone, and that and that's very reductive as a way to talk about it, but just visually alone, it's, I think, competitive with Citizen Kane as the best shot debut I've ever seen. Oh, it's wonderful for a debut. Though I have to say, though, that movie, it's just so depressing and draining. It's the type of film where it's like, I saw it once, I'm done. <laughs> well, the pacing of it was uh, an issue for me. I mean, Ray, Sayujit Ray's pacing, just in general, it's not my cup of tea. Um, but there's usually some visuals that can sort of take me through it uh, that I can just grab hold of. Because I, I don't feel like the, I don't feel like I have a rope to hold on to when I'm watching his movies. And that's just my experience with watching them. That's nothing against them. But like, I, I, I feel like this film is kind of very Japanese in a way. Um, just yeah. the story being told and the rural setting. He was, uh, yeah, I read somewhere that he was like massively influenced by Tokyo Story when that came out. That uh, it makes sense. Donald Ritchie, the, uh, the film writer, took him to go see it. And he was like, 
weeping and was uh it was a major inspiration on it which makes sense it kind of looks like an ozu kind of moves like an ozu yeah i feel like with like japanese stuff like i i feel like i have like a rope to hold on to as far as getting through the story and everything and i felt i felt very disoriented watching uh uh not disoriented in like i'm dizzy sense but i didn't have something to hold on to with uh with with this one of Ray's, and I felt that way with the music room as well, um, which is another one I've seen of his. I think those are the only two I've actually seen of his. But yeah, uh, it's it's not a bad movie. Don't take my uh, reaction to watching it as anything against the actual film. And I mean, especially like the soundtrack, uh, it's undeniable. Even if you don't like the fucking movie, that soundtrack, I think most people would fucking groove to that fucking soundtrack. Like, it's, Jesus. Oh, yeah, it's amazing. I mean, that's I could listen to that every day. I really could. Well, so, I think it's one of the best movies of the year in every way. I think it's just a complete package. So fuck you. Okay. All right. I'll, I'll take the fuck you. <laughs> I'm in between. I feel like this happens quite often. I'm like, it's fine. Cody's like, meh. And John's like, I'm going to kill both of you. This is my life. Well, this, I mean, this whole podcast, it's eventually going to turn into one of those like serial making a murder kind of things like <laughs> you listen to all john the episodes did it. john you, did it yeah you hear like john slowly brewing and then eventually he kills us and then you know reporters take over and kind of chronicle what happened well afterwards. you've seen and like casablanca now so that i think took a couple months off the yeah murder. that that brought you back down a bit i mean because if i had watched casablanca and hated it that might have been i would just probably I mean, I really don't think I could discuss movies with somebody who hated Casablanca. Fair like, enough. It's just so far off from the way I watch them. Having seen it now, I uh, and we're going to do a full, don't worry, we're going to do a full Casablanca episode in the future uh, because, yes, I did finally see it. Yes, I did enjoy it. Uh, not to veer off 1955 for too long, but it's coming. I will say no more, but it's coming. The great big Casablanca episode. And I, I feel the same. If somebody doesn't like Casablanca, fuck them. So let's go from Ray to Ray. Hey. Uh, about- Ray to Ray. <laughs> Ray Ray. From Justin to Kelly, from Ray to Ray. Was that is that the name of that movie? Yeah, I don't even remember. The uh, American Idol I, so feature I, film from Justin to Kelly. Yeah, God bless. I remember, uh, I, rather, I love Rebel Without a Cause. And I have to say, the more I, I remember watch, it too. I, I remember <laughs> it. The more that I watch it, the the better it is, and yeah. for different reasons. Yeah. And I got it. I have to say that's probably some of the brilliance of this film is that you can watch it as a teenager and feel like, oh my god, this fucking movie gets me. You know, ever, screw the system. And then you can watch it older and look back on it and be like, you know, his dad's really reasonable. <laughs> yeah, like everybody in the movie is so compelling. I mean, yeah. that, that father is just such a compelling yeah, character. They're, they're so drawn, so well drawn that, like, like you said, as a youth, you're gonna take something away from it. As an adult, you're gonna take something different. It, it's even Buzz is such just such a good character. <laughs> I was gonna say he's there. Buzz Gunderson. Where are the where are the Buzz Gundersons of 2016? <laughs> just that scene where they're both standing on the edge of the cliff and like they basically outright say like neither of them has anything against each other. Mm. But they've got to do this thing. Yeah, I like, I love all that that sort of idea that it's, you're compelled to do it, but it makes so much sense. It's another empathetic movie, huh? Definitely. Oh, 100%. I mean, and for everybody, too. And for all these weird characters, you yeah. know, like you have like Jim is, is the rich kid with anger issues who like, you know, is desperate for limits, you know, and, and like he needs structure so bad he's willing to like go out of his way to like 
kill a guy or something or or be in these like you know violent fights just so he can go to the cops and get arrested yeah he keeps trying and it like it keeps getting like Mm -hmm. messed up or like you know it's funny the first time i watched that movie i thought that the sort of dynamic between him and his father was a little dated even though like i i get it you know like that sort of like i have to be a man and you're not a good man role model for me kind of thing still exists it's not that that hasn't gone away really but i thought that they were meaner to his father and, and more like you know that that image of him with the um uh, the frilly, um, what is it called? I don't even apron. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. He has that frilly apron and like you think like, oh man, they're just trying to make fun of like, you know, trying to like demasculate him, like rather uh, emasculate him and, and make fun of like this, like, you know, the image of the sissy or something. But you watch it now watching it again more recently. I thought that actually was really fair to him. Yeah. You know, there's really. He's very practical. He's super practical. And he's not worried about the stuff that's worrying his son. So right. like it doesn't occur to him. And his son but that is stuff, really I think, the... is all still very real. I mean, that, oh, 100%. that dynamic is like uh, the reverse of King of the Hill, you know, with Bobby right. and Hank. Yeah. That stuff, I don't think, went anywhere. Oh, no, I agree. But it was it's interesting, though, because I, it was just the first time I watched it, I thought they were trying. It was like that sort of, it, yeah. I, it felt dated, and I realized now it really isn't. You know, it, it, that was, I don't know, that was very fascinating to me. I mean, I also like Natalie Wood with her creepy fucking father. Oh, my God. You realize that shit, too. You know, I always thought it was more just like, well, her father's mean. But you watch it now and you're like, no, that's some Freudian, like, yeah. creepy shit. Mm-hmm. That's the type of thing where, like, you're kind of glad they had the Hayes Code at this time. Because if that was pushed any further, like, you wouldn't have been able to focus on the rest of the movie. Yeah, it would have been too like it would have had to have been the movie. It yeah, would have had to have been yeah. just that story because somebody's got to be calling CPS. Yeah, but it was like right on the borderline of like you know like there's really nothing you can pin him on other than that vibe. Yeah, well, he's you know I, I forgot that she's meant to be 16 in yeah. that movie too, and it's also that you know I love the that sort of opening up the discussion about the dynamic between being 16, being caught between being a child and being an adult or thinking you're an adult or thinking it's time for you to be an adult. God, it's all about being trapped, isn't it? It's all about being caught between something like that shot of him on the staircase with his mother above him and his father below him. Right. Or everybody in the fishbowl and the police station or even they're like recluses like that sunken pool. Right. Everybody's always trapped. It's a very, I thought it was very Freudian, symbolic, interesting movie. Which they did better in the 50s than they do now because they took it more seriously. Like now Freud, you can't really take him seriously as much. Right. I mean, and then Plato is, uh, you know, the first time I watched it, I was so overwhelmed by like the repressed homosexuality. Yeah, down to the name. Like, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) of that whole movie. Though this time, I, you know, I I watched it like the other day again, just because it's been a while. And I, you know, I'm so happy that it held up and and actually like even got even better since the last time I saw it. But I just, he's like a straight up serial killer. (laughs) You know, like I forgot about that aspect of him. You know that he's like he just they just watch a kid like kill himself off a cliff and he's like hey guys you want you want to come back for for dinner like uh, let's hang out and and like you know James Dean's like ah, I gotta go like <laughs> like nah it's cool but he he's such wait a, but, what aspect I mean I I never got this sense of him as malevolent at all well he the, he he's gets arrested sort of for shooting like, puppies desensitized and like uh, oh I forgot about yeah. that he yeah, gets he arrested did. for shooting puppies oh he's super fucked up I forgot all about mm-hmm. that he follows you know he's like you know he just meets uh, Jim in, in the in Alley yeah, Woods yeah, like you're right yeah. when when did you when did you guys meet he's like oh we're best friends he comes over to my house every day he yeah, follows him home creepy little bitch. It's it's creepy actually. I and at first it I don't know why that didn't stand out to me as much. Cell Video is so 
broken in his eyes. You can't you can't do anything but look at him and like want to fix him, take care of him. Well, you're big on the men's. He was a great actor. And he was super tragic. I mean, he really yeah. was gay, and he died because of it. He was uh, he was murdered for propositioning the wrong guy, fulfilling the prophecy that all the leads in uh, Rebel Without a Cause were died young, and two of them were murdered. Right. I mean, horrible. one by Christopher Walken. Yeah. <laughs> for walking. Fun movie trivia there. Yeah. That's up for debate. But um yeah. I mean it, and he's but that's the other thing though is he's also sympathetic, you know? Yeah. And, and that's what's really so brilliant about that film is that when you see him get shot in the end, you you you're kind of with, you know, James Dean on the ground. You're like, "No." Yeah. You know, it could have been another way. That's that's a brilliant movie. And didn't that go unsolved the uh the Minio murder too, right? So did Natalie Wood. Yeah. God damn. The movie really, you know, it caught something. It caught something in the three people in it. Mm. They all ended up like you'd think they would end up in the movie. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with more 1955 in film. See you soon. And now, Smug Film presents Robot Reenactments. In the New York Herald, November 26th, year 1911, there is an account of the hanging of three men. They died for the murder of Sir Edmund William Godfrey, husband, father, pharmacist and all-around gentleman resident of, Greenberry Hill, London. He was murdered by three vagrants whose motive was simple robbery. They were identified as, Joseph Green, Stanley Berry, and Daniel Hill. Green, Berry, Hill. And I would like to think this was only a matter of chance. This has been a robot reenactment. Now. Back to the show. Hello, I am the hunky smug film sponsor plug man. I'm here to tell you about the fine people who support the smug film podcast through Patreon. You all should check out Bobby Slow on Twitter. He's a very funny and good man who tweets funny and good things and is worthy of your love. And he has a really good Twitter ratio of followers to following. That's impressive. Once again, that's Bobby Slow on Twitter. You should also check out Minor Key Games. Go on over to MinorKeyGames.com and check out these awesome computer games made by David and Kyle Pittman. Two brothers that make great video games with an old school feel. Cody hates new video games for the most part, but he enjoys the heck out of these. Once again, that's MinorKeyGames.com. Also, be sure to check out Room Full of Spoons. Rick Harper's documentary about the cult classic film The Room. It's a great documentary that we all love here as Smug Film, and go to roomfullofspoons.com to find out when it's coming to your city. Thank you for listening to my hunky voice, and thank you all who have donated to the show. And if you would like to be plugged on the show, please head on over to patreon.com slash smugfilm and donate. And now, back to the episode. Hello. I am the new smug film voicemail plug lady. I'm sexier, better, and lovelier in every way. Anyway, please leave a question or a comment for the smug film podcast at 718-395-9711, and we may play it on a future episode. Thank you for listening to my beautiful voice. And now, back to the show. And we are back. Thank you for listening as always. Thank you for uh, listening to all those little little bits that we do. I, I I hope you listen to like the plugs and the 
the uh, robot reenactments. You guys liking those robot reenactments, <coughs> listeners? We we picked those uh, pretty well, I think. Are you enjoying the robots? Yeah, I'm liking those. Jenna's actually the robot of the robot reenactments. Yeah, she's an incredible we voice actor. We couldn't afford actor. a robot. No. My favorite food is pizza. Yeah. That's uh, those are all Jenna, the male and the female robot voices. I don't understand what the problem is. Oh, that one's disturbing. That was really good. <laughs> that is, that's that's unnerving. Hello. Do the rest of the episode like that. Hello, how are you? <laughs> how I, do you do that? I am a robot. That is how I do this. You're like a robot with laryngitis. Uh, yes. How long can you talk about Blackboard Jungle in that voice? I unfortunately have not seen Blackboard Jungle. Oh, Jesus. Blackboard <laughs> Jungle's incredible. And uh, a perfect next one to talk about after uh, Rebel Without a Cause, probably. Yeah, which you'll you'll love, Blackboard Jungle. Genobots. I know. I, I really wanted to see it, and I missed it. Yeah, I mean, please just watch it, just in general, in Weeping. life. Weeping. Weeping. You know, just... Weeping. You know. <laughs> well, uh, Blackboard Jungle, kind of like a seismic film, yeah, huge deal. Yeah. Huge deal. Uh, in the same way The Graduate was a decade later. You know how The Graduate was the first one to use like contemporary music in the teen world and everything? It wasn't. Blackboard Jungle was right. in 1955. It was the first movie with rock and roll on the soundtrack. Uh, and it's sweet, man. That Bill Haley song is still sweet. Mm-hmm. And uh, they say it caused riots in theaters, which I'm not super inclined to believe. Right. Yeah, it doesn't... Uh... But it's super violent sense, in the yeah. middle, so maybe. I you mean, know, it's another one that's shockingly violent. Whenever they say riots in the theaters, it's usually like people enjoyed it. Yeah, I yeah. mean, like the Elvis. There's a couple of Elvis movies that like there were riots and people had to get kicked out, and it's like they probably just like the music, you know? Yeah, people were having a good time. <laughs> you know, there was no like idea of like you have to sit here and watch this. Maybe like, fuck a couple it. of them danced. I don't know. So yeah. if there was one to do it, it probably would be the middle of Blackboard Jungle. Yeah, I mean, that gets real uh, heavy duty. Yeah, it pulls it back in the end, but uh, that that whole... Basically, when Vic Morrow is around and (laughs) Sidney Poitier isn't, then it goes, like, real dark. There are some, like, face punches in that alley scene. Yeah. Like, there's a series of face punches that, like... I know exactly the part you're talking about, yeah. It doesn't cut away, it doesn't do anything. You're seeing, like, fist-to-face contact to, like, a bloody face that's, like... I mean, most filmmakers now still like kind of like cut away from shit like that. But it, hashtag Green Brothers, you, yeah, face you, punching capital of the world. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, you're you're gonna be the new face punch king <laughs> when that movie comes out. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty unnerving to see those yeah. like contact hits. I mean, yeah, the, the violence they don't they don't shy away from whatsoever. And what happens to the woman teacher and how quiet that whole section is is oh god, harrowing. Absolutely. So yeah, like maybe maybe Blackboard Jungle cause right. Could be. Yeah, maybe they weren't just dancing to the rock and roll, but uh, uh it's 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 kind of interesting though because uh the script was written by Evan Hunter who later went on to write Last Summer, which as we know is the dopest. And Evan Hunter does a, a milder version. He pulls away at the end, but he does a similar version in both of the same thing in both movies where um the teenagers sort of the more they're together, the worse they become. Right. And really, like, the only way to get to them is to, like, pull them apart from each other. It's, uh, I, I think it's very honest, but it seems to be his thing. Well, this movie, uh, if, even if you haven't seen it, you've seen versions of it. Because it's basically the movie that spawned off, you know, Dangerous Minds 
and uh, lean on me and like a whole bunch of other like, uh, you know, let's let's make these kids do good. In or the class. direct remake class of 1984, which sure. is a spectacular movie. Yeah. And uh, yeah, you, you get the idea of the thing. It's a guy coming to a school that's not doing too well and he's got to whip these kids into shape. It's uh, I mean, we've seen it. You know, we've seen the blatant like white teacher, black student version. We've seen uh, stand and deliver. We've seen versions of this. Yeah. But this is I mean, this is the best and most definitive version, I feel. Yeah. And it's a it's an important one because the mid 50s were really all about figuring out that teenagers go to the movies. So these two films this year were the beginning of the the youth market, which uh, a lot until then, really only the monster movies had played off of. But uh, this is, you can almost blame these movies for the superhero movies now. Oh, no. You know, they were the ones that Don't figured say out that. Teenager mo- <laughs> teenagers would go to the movies in droves. By the way, uh, Sidney Poitier in that movie, hunk of a man. Oh, yeah, yeah. Just a Jesus very good looking Christ. guy. I was sweating. I was, uh, my heart was racing just looking at his his face and his body and his everything. He's I mean, he's, he's fucking gorgeous in that movie and incredible performance. He has such good chemistry with Vic Morrow, too. Oh, God. The two of them are just wonderful together. And uh, he's not on the cover of the movie on the DVD or anything. He's not on the back, really. Like, if you squint, you can see, like, a tiny square. There's, like, a shot where he's talking to the teacher. Um, Is he not? Sometimes they, like, really push him in the movie. He's totally buried on the DVD that I saw. Uh, Not on the cover. Name not even in the... uh, you know, the small print on the back, which is oh, that's crazy. fucking unnerving because he he owns that fucking movie and is so central to that film that it's like, how could he get left off? And it, it just boggles the mind. You know who's great at it? Clinger from MASH. <laughs> One of his few non-Clinger from MASH roles. <laughs> yeah. He's a great presence, Jamie Farr. And uh, shout out to Jamie Farr. Paul Mazursky. Yeah. He was in it. Yeah, he was pretty he? good. Yeah, he plays one of the young kids. Now I have to see it. Yeah, I'm, well, you have to see it, then, Joe. It's so good. Um, She's only gonna watch the Mazursky parts. Can I just fast forward? No, <laughs> and Portier, come on. Oh God, he's fucking unbelievably gorgeous. I can't even. I've definitely watched worse things for him. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, is the film flawed in ways? Sure. Does some of the st- does some of the turns? Can you see them a mile away? Yes. Well, it's just been so imitated exactly right. for so long. It crea- it's probably it was probably a very different experience at the time because yeah, really nobody had done we it. We can't really truly fathom what it was like to see that movie organically. Yeah, it was it was probably like seeing The Exorcist in theaters. You know, it was just like there was nothing else. Yeah. to compare it to. And you know, the opening titles and the end credits, the font's a little cheesy. It, it doesn't really represent the entire You're film. Mad down on the fonts of 1955. I am. You know. We were talking before we started recording. Well, actually, well before. I think we talked about this a couple days ago. Uh, House of Bamboo. I can't look at the opening titles. There's certain like opening titles around this era that I can't look at. I can't look at East Eden's opening titles. It was not a great time for me, personally, as a human being, as far as uh, opening titles. House of Bamboo is also kind of a rough road all the way through. Yeah. Except for the ending, which is awesome, and the parallax view stole and made its opening, which is probably the smart thing to do so that you don't have to wade through two hours of how Robert Stack likes his eggs. <laughs> Just literally, like, ten minutes of the film is Robert Stack talking about what he likes for breakfast. Yeah, not a good Sam Fuller movie. Uh, Maybe his worst. Yeah. At least of what I've seen. Me too. But uh, Blackboard Jungle, please see it. Uh, even though you've seen it a million times by now in other versions... 
fucking watch that one. It, it it's truly incredible. We have to talk about Night of the Hunter, which of course, Shit, yeah. yeah, amazing. You know, for someone, yeah. it's the only movie he ever directed, right? Yeah, yeah because Lawson. people didn't like it, and he was crushed. Oh God, what we a- were we were robbed of having more Charles Lawton movies. I can't even fathom making a movie that good and nobody liking it. like that feeling. Like that's a, that's a perfect fucking movie. It's yeah. beautiful. It's terrifying. It's acted. I mean, Mitchum is amazing. Like I love it has all those like kind of Weimar Republic like looks to it. Uh, like I think John, you were saying earlier about how it's a great mix of like the, the silent film era with like, you know, more like modern filmmaking. Well, I don't actually think there's anything particularly modern. In 50s, it. 50s modern. What we were, what I was saying was this era really felt like an era where people were trying to find out how they would be making movies from then on because they knew it was changing. And a lot of them, like, say, Kiss Me Deadly or the Phoenix City Story took very different approaches and tried to, or Lovers and Lollipops, the uh, Ruth Orkin movie that we're probably not going to have time to talk about, but it's spectacular. Hell of a title. Yeah, great movie. Uh, you know, like, a, a lot of movies started to take really new and bold approaches. Uh, Charles Lawton does the exact opposite in a way that's just as brilliant. He goes right back to the, the height of the 20s, uh, down to casting Lillian Gish, who was, uh, right. you know, she was D.W. Griffith's ingenue. And uh, the, the framing of that movie is all silent cinematography. Uh, the, the sort of abstract expressionism creeping into the sets and the pools of light and dark and the, just the quiet of it all and how much of it is visual storytelling. The amazing art direction of that film. It's just everything's beautiful. Uh, you know, and I love that, like, it, it really unnerves you. Yeah, it's it's impossible to watch and not be creeped out. It's yeah. like it, it brings back that fear of the dark. Yeah, like him it, just it standing out there. Perfectly gets that thing Shyamalan wanted, where it was like scary fairy tales, right? And also scary, like exciting in a funny way, almost. Like there there are some like uh, almost Home Alone esque beats with uh, with Robert Mitchum's character and the kids that like you really don't see again in in the same kind of way until home alone and then it's obviously it's it's more geared towards kids well yeah his final scene where where he that like jump like the cat <laughs> yeah literally that that actually now that i'm thinking about it probably is straight up home alone <laughs> yeah no absolutely <laughs> that's the only one that seems weird in that whole movie i thought it was a little too comedic oh i love it i think it, it you need that that comedic element to even make it more disturbing yeah like the babadook it, it does it does sort of work i i just him like whistling him singing outside of yeah. their house and just standing there is so creepy. Like that movie just like it makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up like. Yeah. I mean, he's he's really he's kind of like a laughable character because his logic for and his justifications are so absurd. Yeah, like he's he's such a fucking like asshole and he has these like he has his ego on him that's like ferocious that like it is kind of comedic in that way. And I think that's why the comedic touches were there because it's kind of like, it's like you fucking dick. <laughs> like you're, you're just like a piece of shit. You're not half the man you think you are, you know? I just take that as, as, as stylized, which again is kind of why it reminds me of almost like Weimar Republic silent yeah. films is that it's just like everything is a choice and deliberate and they play into a sort of almost, you know, the child's fairy tale of, you know, what happens. But then there's these really graphic and violent scenes. Oh yeah. At yeah. least, you know, yeah. for the time. And, and, and so it's just, I don't know that that movie is just fascinating, endlessly fascinating. It's, it's such a shame that there isn't more of it, you know, like, yeah, it's heartbreaking that he never made another. It's a, it's a straight up robbery, you mm-hmm. know, 
He should have been. He also, I mean, God, what a talent. The fact that he's not a household name is really sort of sad. He was such a spectacular actor as well. Uh, he was one of the best of his time, and he was just so talented, and somehow, you know, we did him wrong. Well, yep. not us, because we weren't alive, but no. somebody did him wrong. <laughs> we would have done him right. You would have done him. I would have done him. So we were talking about Kiss Me Deadly briefly just a second ago. Oh, we, my God. I mean, that deserves a little bit more attention. In yeah, per- if you're one of those people who got into film through Pulp Fiction, first of all, <laughs> ha Second of all, watch Kiss Me Deadly, because it's it's the blueprint for everything you're looking for. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Down to the suitcase. Yeah, and and in particular, it accomplishes so well what, you know, a lot of like indie, low budget kind of sci-fi kind of things have been trying to do for the last 20 years where they're trying to tell a small story with a much larger container above it where like people yeah. are realizing that shit goes above their heads and uh yeah it's a noir that's invaded by science fiction yeah which is that's that's literally what everybody's trying to do yeah whenever you see some new thing with like jake gyllenhaal or whatever or even cloverfield the new cloverfield yeah exactly i mean that that's the template that that's irresistible which i i think you could make the case that it's it's pulled off better here than anywhere else yeah i mean nowhere with such savagery either you know that ending is ferocious yeah it's so uh there's a tendency to remember 50s movies like we were saying at the beginning as these sort of uh mild-mannered films waiting for the 60s but when they go hard it's still hard yeah it's disturbing it, it just like with some of the hits in blackboard jungle very disturbing the end to this is undeniably disturbing and uh, like overwhelming i mean it's just such a finale yeah and, uh, it, you know, it's it's one of those things where, like, if you've ever not been that into film noir, if you wanted more from it, this is a film noir that gives you way much more than you ever could have imagined that it would give you. It's like it, it's like a movie that keeps on giving almost like it just keeps opening up bigger and bigger for you. And great criterion release. Another shout out, because it seems like a couple of these uh, 55 movies were talking about these important films uh, Criterion has done a great job with. Yeah, including uh, Diabolique, which we're probably not going to have time to even talk about. Right. They, well, uh, they brought that one back. Let's talk about Lady and the Tramp. Fuck yeah. Which I, I watched Lady and the Tramp the other day. I mean, I've seen it a billion times in my life, but I you know, I, I don't know that I've seen it like as an adult. I don't think and I've ever seen it. Re- it's really? fucking good, dude. It is good. It's fantastic. First I mean, maybe all, I saw it when I was a little kid. I don't remember it. It opens with a dedication to dogs. I do love dogs. The movie is dedicated to dogs. It's My like, whole life's work is dedicated to dogs. Yeah, how great is that? This episode is dedicated to dogs. <laughs> Fair enough. Every all them out there in the streets, in the in the homes. homes. So yeah, it churches, opens up shopping malls. It's dedicated to dogs. And they're in the mines. You're going to like this, too. I, I think this whole oh, lady... oil derricks. This whole Lady in the Tramp bit is going to be me selling Lady in the Tramp to uh, John D'Amico. Trapped in trees? Any of them. All of them. Get this. 2.55 to 1 aspect ratio. It was during a weird time for aspect ratios where they weren't sure on what super wide should be. Yeah. So it was like... an. They were like trying to figure it out still. They didn't settle on, you know, 2.35 or whatever. Um, this was also the year you had Oklahoma in 2.7. Yeah, it was a funny uh, aspect ratio strange Straight thing. Straight up, going. fuck Oklahoma, by the way. Peace. Oh, God, I can't. Oh, God, yeah. I can't I wait mean, to talk about Oklahoma with you. We've heard of, of John's uh, hatred for Oklahoma before on this podcast. 
If I knew which episode, I'd say just listen to that. Yeah, I don't remember either, but it's going back there. Wide ratio. But yeah, I mean, I guess in thinking about Lady and the Tramp in my adult life, there's a great scene in Last Days of Disco, one of my favorite films ever by Whit Stillman, where they talk about Lady and the Tramp and what Lady and the Tramp means. They try and analyze it. And it's a great scene. It's, you know, it's their takes are interesting. It, it's very far off from like the actual film. Like it, it's clearly it's people talking about it that haven't seen it in a number of years, which I like. I think that's like a cool thing to capture, like people talking about something that they don't fully remember. It works for the theme of the film of like coming of age. Uh, Last Days of Go, great film. But it's totally far off as far as uh, Lady and the Tramp's actual vibe. So going into it, I was tainted by these characters' ideas of what Lady and the Tramp means. These like in- over-intellectual ideas of what Lady and the Tramp represents. Lady and the Tramp itself is just a very sweet and uh, beautiful film with, honestly, maybe the best Disney female protagonist ever. Uh, her character design is so perfect and so beautiful. And the way that her ears kind of flow as like hair is ingenious, oh, yeah. absolutely ingenious. Her looks, her facial expressions are way better than any other Disney, Disney princess by far. She feels like an actual person in the way that like human Disney characters actually don't. And you're introduced to her right away. She's your 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 anchor through the story, essentially. It's a lady's story. It's not Tramp's story, really. And I also like the, the fact that you can get really on the nose with dog names in a way that you can't get with human names. Like, you know, if she was a female character, female human character, she would need, like, a name that evoked lady. But because you're dealing with a dog, like, it's like, yeah, a dog could be called lady. It can be as on the nose as, like, She's got this like charmed life. We're calling her lady. This guy's on the street. We'll call him Tramp. You know, it it can be that fucking on the nose with it, which I think is kind of a cool, interesting thing that you can get away with with uh, animals. And uh, it's just a great film. It's gorgeous. There's a scene where she's like walking up the stairs. That's some of the best Disney animation I've ever seen. Uh, People forget how wonderful Disney animation is. Yeah, like it. It was really wonderful. When they're on, they're fucking on. And they're on in like weird ways that like, I don't know if, if you're not an animation nerd, maybe you won't pick up on, but you'll pick up on it like inside and you won't know what did it. But there's a there's a part where like there's a baby coming into the family and she's curious about the baby and she peeks in at the baby. And instead of uh, animating the baby or making it like a cell, like a still cell superimposed over the painting, they painted the fucking baby. And it's an unnerving thing to see like this still object that you know isn't cell and every other like living character is cell it makes it look like almost like you're not entirely sure if it's alive or what's going on it's like it just it just captures this unnerving quality that captures a dog looking at a baby and not being sure what the fuck it is it's such a subtle thing that like if you're an animation nerd you know like yeah if it's not cell you're gonna be like well what the fuck like all the moving elements have to be cell and this baby's not moving. Like it's, it just fucks you up. Uh, I love that. It, it's just an incredible fucking movie. I can't recommend it enough. You know, I have to say the one thing that I remember of, and I haven't watched lady and the tramp in a while, but having the one thing I remember from watching it as an adult 
was um how many how just how many racial stereotypes are in that movie that's very like 1950s like yeah, people but not get all in a, not in a disrespectful way I well, felt. it's also super disney well but oh era. yeah totally but people get uh, you know they that. get all uppity about the um siamese cats but they forget that like all of the dogs in the pound it's like the irish wolfhound is like a super like like irish mick kind of like stereotype there's like or there's like no it's an irish setter and like a russian wolfhound and then like yeah uh, but they're like they're like good characters they're three-dimensional characters they like have a lot to do yeah but it's like you know three-dimensional leprechaun you know it's like that very stereotype and it's it's just funny it's just like as a clearly never seen the leprechaun movies which are (laughs) the kids you know as a kid you don't you don't really notice it it's like one of those things it's like that oh that's where i learned that's what people are no i i was actually surprised watching it again how okay the racial stuff was I, it was fine it's questionable the Siamese cats I was like bracing myself for because I was like oh man this is going to be like that kind of like like is it, it's going to be I'm going to fucking like be uncomfortable I was bracing myself for being uncomfortable and like the Siamese cat sequence it's like fine it's like there's nothing wrong with it it, it could have been much worse <laughs> it could have been fucking way worse I don't Definitely. think it, but I don't think any of the racial stuff was bad I'll go on record at least in this instance in I think Lady it's questionable but it doesn't ruin the movie. There's a great, uh, she has like a, a soliloquy almost that kind of morphs into a song where she's like, she's like, what is a baby? Which is like fucking like, that's so deep for like a kid's movie. It's like this dog, like walking through the house. How is what is a baby deep? It's just a little person. It's fucking existential. <laughs> I dude. got it right. It's just a little person who's not big. It's yet. like, but what is a baby. Like, what it, What does a baby mean? It means that there's a little tiny person who's going to get bigger. It's existential, John. I you would have sing, I would sing a song and it. I can't remember it now. But yeah, she's just wandering through the house. She's like, it, it's almost like that great moment in Superman where she's like, like, what are you? Like, she's like, she's the like, poem? yeah, it's, that's a hard, hard road to Oh, that's a great. That's, that's like a, the worst part of the movie. I love that. That's like my favorite part. Isn't that only in the director's cut? Yeah. Oh, I love that part. I can't. I hate that part. Really? It makes me cringe. Well, you might like this uh, Lady in the Tramp thing, though. It, it's well done. It's a it's a nice little, like, what the fuck is a baby song. And uh, great movie. All right. So we should probably get into a lightning round because this episode's getting a little long. Uh, I'll say quickly, This Island Earth. Love This Island Earth. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, a lot of people might know it as a mystery science theater movie. It's a... Uh, it's the one that was their their actual movie that they made. And yeah, there are funny things in it and there's stuff to make fun of, but it's actually like a legit good sci-fi well, film. Well, that's why they picked it for their feature film. They oh, yeah? couldn't do a movie that was like so alienating the way a lot of other ones were. They had to get one that was a good movie, uh, which it is. Yeah, it's a it's, really good movie. It's got interesting concepts too in it. Like it, the fact that like it's two people having to build a device that they have plans for given to them by the aliens in order for them to communicate with the aliens. That's like a very, like that, that that's a sci-fi premise now. That's like a indie, yeah. that's like- That a, would be a TV show That's now. like a Shane Carruth film. Yeah. <laughs> and the design of the uh, aliens and everything is spectacular. Oh God, he, I mean, he's an like, iconic alien design that I don't think a lot of people realize is from that film. Like, I think people have seen that like- maybe on the shelf in like comic book stores for like yeah. $200 like you know figure maybe they don't yeah the metal would be with the claws yeah he's gorgeous he, he's it's a beautiful design really nice production design in that film I like that film a lot I think Spielberg liked it a lot 
Um, Everybody liked it. It was a, it was actually a big sort of even a critical hit at the time. Yeah, it and it's one that people have been trying to remake. I think uh, for a while that I just never got off the ground. But yeah. I do, I do think that's that that's a kind of story that could lend itself to a remake because you could go yeah, a little right. dark with it. You could go in different directions. What a title it. too! This island Earth, yeah, oof, beautiful title, great title, one of the best sci-fi titles ever, maybe. Yeah, John, you got a lightning round one. Yeah, you, uh, you've got a couple, I know. I mean, I have a million. There's one I really wish we had time to talk about more because it's really one of the most significant films of the year. Uh, but it's sort of hard to talk about because of the nature of what it is. But uh, Night and Fog really, oh, Jesus. really deserves a lot of attention. Night and Fog. I mean, we were talking earlier about how stilted documentaries were at this era. Mm. Night and Fog is a major component of what changed that. Oh, yeah. And it's also a major component of how we remember World War II. Uh, in particular the Holocaust, because it was the first time anybody really was exposed to the death camp imagery in its full horror, mm -hmm. except for immediately after the war. And uh, the the French government fought it. They didn't want it to be as graphic as it was, but uh, Rene, to his credit, uh, just wouldn't give in. And it was a historical uh, thing. It, it was very important to just say that uh, this is worth more than the... Uh, way it's going to shake people yeah and it, it'll shake you to this day essentially yeah. i mean this is footage that never doesn't shake you I yeah mean, it's just it's difficult to watch but a important thing to watch i think it also puts the rest of what's happening in this era in its proper context which is the era of still trying to figure out what the hell happened in the early 40s you know mm. like they were still sort of if not rebuilding physically, rebuilding emotionally from the fucking cataclysms. Jenna, save us from uh, well, let's Holocaust like, depression. Let's go from the Holocaust right into musicals. Go I want to talk about some musicals because, you know, so John wanted to murder himself after he saw Oklahoma, which uh, I actually, because of that feedback, has made me uh, avoid it. So I haven't seen Oklahoma, though. I've seen Oklahoma, but not the movie. Any good thing about Oklahoma? You said it looked good, though. I don't want to talk about Oklahoma. All right. I don't want to. <laughs> Dude, he's over here. He's got like fever like, yeah, he chills. Is, he is having fever chills. So I'll talk about, um, you know, Daddy Long Legs came out this year, which is, you know, sort of a later Fred Astaire vehicle with uh, Leslie Caron, who is uh, super charming and adorable. This movie, it's like, it's like one of those movies where if Fred Astaire wasn't such a gentleman, it could have been pretty uncomfortable. But as it is, he is one and it's still pretty uncomfortable because it's basically about, you know, the like the little orphan girl who, uh, you know, the older man in millionaire, billionaire sees this orphan girl and decides to send her checks so, so he can fund her education. But, uh, he, you know, and she sits there and he saves her. So she's writing him letters and, you know, and she always calls him daddy long legs because she asks people like, who, what did he look like? And they just said, oh, he has long legs. And <laughs> that's it. That's all she knows. So. She's in love with him just on the basis of his kindness. And he's this like older playboy who, you know, you know, he's doing his own thing and he avoids her for the whole movie. So it's like it's just one of those like it's this, uh, you know, what is it? May, December romance kind of situation that's like really fairly uncomfortable because he's like in his 50s and she's yeah. like a teenager. But, you know, it's a musical. It's, you know, it's certainly a ton of dancing and. 
It's okay. It's it didn't I didn't really feel well, what's me. what's one you dug? But I will say um that uh I love Guys and Dolls. Mm-hmm. Guys and Dolls came out this year. And you know what? I I really would recommend watching Guys and Dolls because this play, I love the play. The music is wonderful. And the music's wonderful because it's it's intelligent and it's funny a lot of the times. And uh, you know, it's about gambling. This is like a, a sort of anti-musical musical in a way it, and like you know at least that it's taking on the sort of underbelly of society but it's making it hyper stylized uh and colorful and fun you know like the, it's basically also uh dealing with like these guys trying to deal with these women and the women have like a really great say in things you know you don't ever feel like they're being totally pushed under the the rug or, mm. or you know steamrolled by uh what the men want you know, their gambling is even sort of shown as being kind of, you know, frivolous and, and dumb. And uh, in, in between, you get some actual genuine, you know, romantic numbers and uh, impressive acting. So, you know, this Brando took this movie because he thought as an actor, he has to be well-rounded. So he has to do a song and dance number. See, I wish more people would do that these days. You see that with like Channing Tatum, you know, you see that with like a rare dude like that. But you don't really see anybody trying desperately to be well-rounded like when john ham started doing comedy stuff oh he's I was so like, good at it i was like yes somebody who wants to be able to do all of that you know it's just it's always great to see that well brando i mean he really helps because you know even though he's not a singer he doesn't fail <laughs> he's not terrible but he at least brings up like a, a good acting quality to it you know sinatra is an, again in in this movie who you know he can sing um his acting in this is a little stiff i thought but it, it also kind of works with the characters. But I the, I love Guys and Dolls. It, it, this is not the best production of Guys and Dolls I've ever seen. It, they cut out some music. They cut out some numbers, which I wasn't sure why. Hmm. Um, because it's a pretty, it's like a three hour long movie anyhow. So, you know, I, they, I think it's because they made room for more dance and like um, instrumental stuff hmm. when they should have just kept the numbers in. But whatever. Good movie. It actually looks beautiful. I really love the the way that they did this movie. It looks like a play, but um, with just enough real sets and detail that uh, it it feels like they're actually in a in a world. So they did a really great job of kind of straddling the the play movie uh, bridge. And you know what? I will I'll even throw out for my uh, my last fifty five pick. I'll throw out the seven year itch, and only because it actually feels like. You know, having talked about everything else that came out this year, it almost feels like the antithesis. I can't say that word. Antithesis. Yeah. It feels like the antithesis to, um, you know, kind of the empathy and well-roundedness of everything else that came out. I hate the out. seven-year itch. It's terrible. So yeah. Billy Wilder. It's awful. And it's and it's so unfair because Marilyn Monroe, you know, for this is the movie that, like, has the most iconic image of Marilyn Monroe with her over that great you know, and this sort of idea of what Marilyn Monroe is. And she's so underused because they, they just make her into this like totally empty airhead. Yeah. And she's in other movies where she's way more attractive, way more interesting and, and way also, more fun. Also, such a spectacular actress. Oh, she didn't God. have to do anything. Yeah. yeah. But when you see her performances in like The Misfits or even Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, which is a great movie, you know, she's got so much potential just purely as an actress that's completely unused. The in- third act is Some Like It Hot. Yeah. I love I mean, Some Like It Hot, I think is her best. She's phenomenal in that. And there's that one, oh God, what's the name of it? The uh, the Babysitter one where she's a- uh, The Babysitter's Club? That was a series of uh, young 
No. The young novels. The, uh, the early 90s. There's that might one, be what you're thinking of. Fuck. There's one where she's a baby. They were babysitters. They had a club. Uh, sometimes they had to... One time they were in a haunted house. Uh, I remember that one. I know the babysitter's My sister was club. too scared to read it, so I read it and was told not, her how it went. It was not the babysitter's club. Let me look it up. It was scary. She woke up in the morning with scratches on her, and she's like, I think these are ghost scratches. Keep you know, talking, because I'm looking at You know it what up. annoys me, though? Like, It's like, this is a, a great example. It's like all these movies where, you know... They just—they clearly hired Marilyn Monroe in this movie to to stand there and look hot, and it's yeah. it's just so—it's so offensive, it's so obnoxious. Don't bother to knock. Nineteen fifty-two, great movie, by the way. Have you seen that, John? Yeah, that was a great Babysitters Club mystery. God damn it, Jenna, have you? Seen, you haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. One of the best uh, Marilyn Monroe performances, in my opinion. Don't bother to knock. It's one of those uh, those uh, very like seventies uh, like horror things where it's like. Uh, Creepy babysitter, slow burn kind of thing. Really good. 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah. yeah. What an interesting year that, you know, you have all that heaven allows about this woman who's waiting and waiting for romance. And then you have the seven year itch about the fucking idiot guy <laughs> who decides like, oh, they told me seven years was the end of marriage. So now I want to bang of like 16 year old or however old she's meant to be. They're always 16. I don't know why. What's she? Yeah, she was like a. She was like she's a. She's like eighteen. I or thought she was something. like a college kid. And is she? Yeah, younger? something like that. Mm. Yeah, fuck that movie. John, what do you got? I, I'm, I'm spent. I spent all mine. Well, I got a bunch. Yeah, uh, I got a bunch. John D'Amico lightning round. I got a bunch. Uh, I'm sad we didn't get to talk about or debt. Uh, but neither of you have seen it, right? Right. You yeah. love it though. Spectacular. Very studious. Very eerie. Uh, the way only Carl Dreyer could, where where a miracle is. Not malevolent, but terrifying all the same. Hmm. And the the ending of Or Dead is, I think, one of the most challenging and and weirdly beautiful endings I've ever seen. Uh, it, it's almost like directly confronting you. All right. Uh, the Criminal Life of Archibaldo de la Cruz by Louis Buñuel, who did two movies this year. I haven't seen his other, The River and Death, but uh, this one's really good. It's about a uh, guy who's afraid he's a serial killer, even though he's never killed anybody. Hmm. Uh, and it really lives in that world of like Buñuel, uh sort of scattered brains, personal contradictions in this wider world of like a uh, society falling apart. And he does a lot of what he'll do later on in uh, that obscure object of desire where it's about somebody's fractured concept of what love is played in miniature around a uh, society that without ever even brought up is in revolt. Hmm. Uh, wonderful movie. Uh, as far as empathetic movies go, which I think is such a big deal this year, uh, one area that's super important is Westerns in 1955. Uh, it was a year of just incredible Westerns that I've said before, and I'll say again, and I'll probably write a book about it, but I don't believe there was ever a genre that took death more seriously than Westerns in the 1950s did. Mm. Uh, and this year you could pick almost any title and it would, it would, uh, Show you that. Uh, the best of them was The Man from Laramie by Anthony Mann, where uh, Jimmy Stewart is on sort of a revenge mission after somebody shoots him through the hand hmm. and kills all his cattle. Damn. And it's just incredible. It's got this... Uh, it's it's basically King Lear in the West with Jimmy Stewart as sort of a wild card. Uh, but it, it's... That's a great way to sell it, actually, yeah. It's a wonderful film about how corrupting it is to hold on to hatred. Uh, and then Edgar Ulmer released what many people call his masterpiece, The Naked Dawn, 
which was a Western about a love triangle that was the inspiration for Jules and Jim, the uh, Truffaut movie. The Naked Dawn is spectacular. It's, it's, uh, it was very low budget, and that austerity kind of aids it because he has to do these very long takes for money reasons. But because they're these long, wide takes, you get to just watch everybody in their environment right. interact. And you really get a sense of these people in a way that you don't in a lot of love stories. Uh, he also did a noir this year called Murder is My Beat. It's not one of his best, but has some incredible Soviet-influenced photography in it. Uh, and Jacques Tournier's Western Wichita this year, which was one of two he did this year. The other was Stranger on Horseback, which wasn't very good, but was strip-mined compositionally for uh, Once Upon a Time in the West. But Wichita is uh, magnificent uh, in terms of depicting violence and the consequences of it. There's this really unforgettable little beat in it where uh, Wyatt Earp is bringing this woman to her hotel room and sort of showing her around the town and everything. And as he leaves her in the room, he turns around and without overemphasizing it or, or pushing it too hard or anything, he just mentions that she should uh, sleep away from the windows in case bullets start flying into the room at night. Oof. And it's just this like very quiet beat in the middle of the thing. It feels almost like, like a hood movie in the 90s, you know? <laughs> <laughs> like the part in uh, Boys in the Hood where he hears the gunshots and starts crying. It's like that right. kind, of a, kind, of a, kind of a vibe. Well, that's a great kind of line too where like it instantly... I mean, that's production values too, right yeah. there, because it, it makes the world feel bigger. It makes you imagine things going on outside of the house that, yeah, you know, they didn't exactly. have to build a set for. They didn't have to hire actors for. It's just that one line. It just adds so much to uh, the entire environment. Yeah. And then there are some other great ones like uh, Strange Lady in Town by Mervyn Leroy, which is about a woman who moves to this old West town and becomes a doctor. And it's just like super sharp and funny and very pretty. And uh, Joseph H. Lewis, who was a noir director, did two, Lawless Street, uh, which was a Western, and The Big Combo, which was a noir. And it's really interesting to look at them together because they're both noirs. One is just with horses. Hmm. Uh, yeah, and you could go... All horse cast? Uh, yes, all horses. Awesome. I mean, you could go all day with Westerns of 1955. Ray Milland directed one, uh, Man Alone, which is spectacular. And it was Ray Milland's first time directing... Uh, and he's really good at it. And Andre de Toth did The Indian Fighter that year, which is the first movie I've ever seen that uh, portrays the Plains Wars as a fight between a superior military force, which is the Native Americans, versus a superior economic force, which is the United States. Mm. I think it was really spot on, uh, and I think would sort of presage how the uh, genre would go when Vietnam started to happen. So a pretty damn good year for Westerns. Yeah, a spectacular year for Westerns. Oh, and uh, John Sturge's Bad Day at Black Rock, which is a Western in modern times. About, pretty well uh, known. Yeah, Spencer Tracy has one arm and he's trying to solve a, a racially motivated murder. Spectacular film. And my last one is a non-Western. Uh, I want to talk about Ed Wood's Bride of the Monster. Oh, yeah. Because it's one of those movies that's really uh, famous for being terrible. I think I've seen that as a mystery of science theater. I think that's one of them. But it's so interesting because it's all about nuclear anxiety. And it's um, it's so watchable. And, and it has such a strange deadpan. Like everybody's afraid without coming out and saying it. Right. And it's probably not uh, technically well put together. But there's there's just this hypnotic quality to it that the best of his stuff had. And I think it's, it's hard to call that bad. Right. Uh, that's probably what I got. There are others. I mean, Moonfleet, the Fritz Lang, and there's a ton of others, but Oh yeah. Uh, we should leave everybody on the fact that 
Uh, Agnes Varda invented the French New Wave in 1955 in a movie that's now only available in a box set, and everybody forgot about it. Right. If you if you take anything away from this episode, take that away from it. Even that's by the important. standards of movies are very sexist, the, the film industry is very sexist. That's incredibly sexist. Yes. The invention of modern cinema is is in a four pack. Yes. And huge uh, Bergman influence. Yeah, the famous persona shot where the one person's looking at the camera and the other person is standing in front in profile. Yeah, she invented it. Yep. 1955. She did it. Shout out to Agnes Varda. Shout out to Agnes Varda. Thank you all for listening. We really do hope you uh, dive into 1955 like we did. Uh, We want to hear some of your favorites, so uh, definitely leave us a voicemail, 718-395-9711. Tell us what films you like that you watched uh, from 1955, if you're uh, checking out some for the first time, or just tell us some favorites you uh, already had. But uh, we want to hear from you. And uh, thank you all for listening. See you soon. Bye-bye.